Alright, so I'm starting the recording now. I mean, I think that's pretty loud. So, I've just got to go to wikipedia.com. Sorry, wikipedia.org. Then click English. Alright. So, yeah, my thought is maybe I'll just like include this bit at like the start of the episode and it doesn't even matter that it won't make a tremendous amount of sense because it will make sense later as the episode goes on um okay so i'm gonna click on random article on wikipedia and i think i'm gonna keep going until i get a person who is still alive i think that is a good way to do it but more importantly a real person not a fictional person all right i'm gonna so anyway right so uh first random article is on the film alien souls no grassroots motorsports no um the breaststroke uh european rugby challenge no maybe i'll I'll play some montage music over some of this so we can skip through some of these uh, a slightly faster clip the wonder book of bible stories uh a species of sea snail an, an organist from Derby, called Henry Taylor, but he's dead. A cinematographer, died in 2001. The video game Unvanquished. A Sumerian ruler. Uh, okay. All right, all right. So I think this person is alive. Rolf Willy Hansen is a Norwegian diplomat. Born 17th of April, 1949. He started working for the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1975. From 1997 to 2000, he served as Consul General in Hong Kong, and uh, he's been Norwegian ambassador to Syria from 2008. It's not the most riveting of biographies, good but... Good languages. Good languages and moves in high circles. Mm. So actually, I think that's, like, that's actually like a pretty, uh, like, that's, that's pretty useful. Do you think he made his own Wikipedia page? No, I think it's, it's too clipped. And that's how you know that he deserves to be in Wikipedia, mm. right? He's not put in about like the that's band he used to be in yeah. in his twenties. So I'm gonna I'm gonna store Rolf Willie Hansen. Um, Come on board, Rolf. Welcome to the party, Rolf. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now keep going. That's one. A uh, Dutch surname, uh, a fort in Goa. Rene Karl died in 1954. Uh, can't even fucking pronounce that. It's Latin. Figure skating, uh, 2009. No. The Demi Cube. Uh, it's a geometrical shape. No. Um, okay. Australian radio personality Ben Harvey. Um, he's a radio presenter and comedian. He co-hosts a breakfast show on Nova 919 with Liam Stapleton. Uh, grew up in South Australia, left school age 16, worked on a dairy farm. 18 years old, he moved to Adelaide. Uh, Harvey began volunteering at the Adelaide Community Radio Station, uh, Fresh 92.7, which is where he met Liam. As a duo, Ben and Liam went on to present the breakfast show for Fresh 92.7. The only concern is, what is Liam going to make of like, not being invited? I know. Uh, when you've got when you've got double acts, it's, you know, it's a big thing to break them up. You can't just book Ant. <laughs> um, I did tell you that one time when I was in a lift at the BBC... The other guy in there was talking really passionately into his phone 
about how who are the the bogeys guys dick and dom dick and dom yeah like he's talking really passionate about how like one of them was incredibly talented <laughs> and the other one was complete dead deadwood and how did we got rid of <laughs> thankfully i've forgotten which one was deadwood and which one was it one of their surnames is wood so it does make it feel a bit like you subconsciously okay. know okay it's, it, it, it's possible then that i misread the entire situation <laughs> all right ben harvey <laughs> Okay, uh, the uh, the album So Called by JT, uh, Species of Grasshopper, Genus of Parrot, uh, The Grammarian Antonius Rufus, a town in Russia, Catholic Bishop, he's dead, I'm off. <laughs> a militia associated with the Arab Socialist Movement, uh, another moth. What? There's a lot of moths. Okay. He's dead, he's dead. Okay, okay. So, uh, Eugene Brave Rock is a Canadian actor and stuntman. Brave Rock grew up on the Kainai Nation Reserve in Alberta and attended the Plains Indian Cultural Survival School in Calgary, where he landed his first role in a play. He was later trained as a stuntman and performed for the Buffalo Bills Wild West show in Disneyland Paris. When The Revenants began filming in Alberta, Brave Rock and his brother were recruited to train native stuntmen. It was during this time that he was contacted by the producers of Wonder Woman who invited him to audition for a role. Though Brave Rock was not confident of his audition, he was cast in the film a month later. All right. Eugene Brave Rock. Uh, laxative. Okay, no, he died in 1847. Uh, a, a mountain in Canada. Women, if only some women had achieved something. Well, listen, Lizzie, I'm looking at Wikipedia. It, it's just not there, so... We can't all be moths and rocks and... <laughs> <laughs> snails. Wait a second. Okay, so we've got our first... We've got our first woman. Ooh. Anjana Rao is a cellular and molecular biologist of Indian ethnicity working in the US. She uses immune cells as well as other types of cells to understand intracellular signaling and gene expression. Her research focuses on how signaling pathways control gene expression. And we all know what that means. <laughs> so fine. I think that's that's that that's great. You're in. I mean she sounds badass. I'm not entirely sure how this is gonna be Useful? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's all going to work out fine. Maybe she's also handy with explosives. No. <laughs> she's handy with the <laughs> nuclear factor of activated T-cells. <laughs> all right. Four down. Gosh, only four. Okay. St. Mary's Church in New York. Parabon Nanolabs. A mathematical area of group theory, which is called Artin Tits Group. No, there's a horse, but he's dead. Oh. If if the horse had still been alive, I would have considered I would have considered them. The cricketer John Davis, sadly, uh, uh, he's dead. Uh, Anti-Chinese sentiment in Korea. Uh, a, a, a a tango. Oh. Pavlo Uskovarok is a Ukrainian orienteering competitor. 
He competed at the 2013 World Orienteering Championships and won a bronze medal in the relay with the Ukrainian team. Is there a picture? Check him out. Yeah, he looks like he knows his way around stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess is a prerequisite. Yeah, it's it's crucial. (laughs) All right. I think there's one spot left. Be good to get another woman, wouldn't it? I'm just gonna like hit it really fast and just keep going until until we get to a until we get to a woman, all right? Or another horse. Or another horse. <laughs> okay, Noma Domezwini, British actress. She's born in Swaziland to South African parents. Uh, she lived in Botswana, Kenya, and Uganda. She arrived in England in uh, 1977. Uh, she won a Laurence Olivier Award for Best Performance in a Supporting Role in a Play for her performance in uh, A Raisin in the Sun. She also starred as Hermione Granger in the original West End and Broadway runs of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. She's won two, yeah, won two Laurence Olivier's, uh, uh, nominated for a Tony. Very useful, I think. Very, very useful. The kitten's farted. Yep. And he's got your headphones. Okay. Brilliant. <laughs> Things have unraveled. Okay. So just to give you the rundown. All right. It's Rolf Willie Hansen. Australian radio personality Ben Harvey. Eugene Braverock. And Jana Rao. Pavlo Ushkavarok and Noma Dumezwini. Fade up on. A prison. Caption. HMP Chelmsford. England. Beneath the modern fabrications, this is and always will be a Victorian prison. Barely a stone has moved since the foundations were laid in 1825. Buzz of a distant gate. Walking down the corridor towards the camera, accompanied by two prison guards. Me, Ross G. Sutherland, wearing prison regulation tracky bottoms, prison regulation blue t-shirt, and prison regulation metal wrist bracelets. Cut to a large, empty hall. The parole board is mid-session. There is a long desk behind which four doughy men in ill-fitting suits, flick absent-mindedly through their paperwork. Their spectacles reflect the afternoon sun, making them look like four Zoltar machines preparing to dispense a future. (coughs) After an interminable silence, one of the parole board finally looks up from his paperwork. Mr Sutherland, one of the conditions of your parole 
is that on no circumstance you make any attempt to fraternize with any of your previous criminal contacts. What assurances can you give me today that as soon as you leave prison, you won't immediately begin planning some kind of ludicrous Guy Ritchie-esque crime caper? Reverse shot of me on the other side of the room, now wearing my tweed suit and newsy cap. Officer, look at me. I don't have a Guy Ritchie bone in my proverbial. From now on, I'm a boring wanker. Simple as bing bang. Dosh. Comprende Monday. All four members of the parole board pick up their pens. Cut to the electric front gate of the prison as it slowly opens. The shadows of the bars roll across my face. As I open the door of my waiting taxi, my prison chaperone can't resist a final snipe. You think your luck's gonna last? He says. Mark my words, mate. Next time, you'll be in here for a ten stretch. Camera close up on my face as I deliver one of my trademark cockney witticisms. Actually, Morris, the only stretch you're ever gonna catch me doing is the stretch of my limousine as it metaphorically rolls over you, thereby crushing your negative opinions of prison reform. You little bitch. I get into the taxi. Heathrow Airport, my good man. The taxi driver clocks my newsy cap, thereby immediately recognising my working class origins. Going on holiday, mate? Yeah, kind of. Six holidays, actually. Gonna go see some old friends about a job. And yes, by job I do mean crime. Cut to opening credits. We watch as silhouettes of hatted geezers spin violently around a roulette table. We zoom towards the image, towards the zero pocket, which becomes an empty bank vault containing nothing but a baffled copper on his knees, his mind broken. We zoom out again now, the bank vault becoming the pupil of an eye belonging to a confident bald man driving an Aston Martin along a road that is really a gun pointed at a dartboard that becomes planet Earth itself, a spinning orb of infinite scheme which we crash zoom back towards now into Eurasia, into England, London, Hackney, East Hackney, a bin, a dead flea, zooming right into the dead flea, right into his sad little chops, then zooming out again to reveal seven people wearing identical flea masks, sitting in the back of a van, all holding sawn-off shotguns, which are actually the word consequences in thick black lettering, which spins around to become a seven-sided heptagon before transforming into a fluxing police light, which becomes the ripple of a lie detector, which becomes an electromagnetic field being slowly destroyed by entropy, flatlining into the oblivion of a dead horizon and darkness, darkness forever. Fade up on a public garden, immaculately maintained. A man in his 70s sits on a bench, reading the newspaper. Behind him, the twin red brick towers of the city's administrative centre. Caption, Oslo, Norway. From off screen, we hear my voice. I see you're making the most of retirement. I say. How far you move from your desk, Rolf? 50 paces? 
Recognising my voice, the man slowly lowers his newspaper. Fucking hell, Ross. You look like you've been shit out of dog. Freeze frame. Caption. Rolf Williams. Of course I look rough, I say. I've been in prison, Rolf. They don't have a nail salon in HMP Chelmsford, I'm sorry to say. Well, says Rolf, they need one. I've got a job offer for you. Rolf raises his newspaper. I'm retired. Exactly. I say, throwing his newspaper over a passing sausage dog. You're retired, so I know you've got the time. All I need is one month, Rolf. You lend me some of your influence, help me with a little bit of the paperwork. The returns on this are very good. Your share could fund a lot of humanitarian causes. Rolf goes quiet, though I can still hear the sound of his nostrils flaring. I dedicated my entire life to the search for peace. Now that word means different things to different people, but I have my meaning. I have my peace, and I'm not going to give it up for some half-cocked hay nonnery from the likes of you. You're not a peace, Rolf. Yes, I fucking am. I have my ray of light. That's all I need. Listen, Rolf. I say. You've done a lot for Norway, yeah? You've helped displaced people around the world, and you should be proud of that. But don't forget, none of that good work would have been possible if you'd been eaten by that tiger back in Riyadh Zoo in 2006. Do you remember Saudi Arabia? If I hadn't pulled you out of Wahid's jaws, your Wikipedia page would have been a damn sight shorter and all those people that you've helped would have had very different lives, wouldn't they? The sun goes behind a cloud. I pull a business card from my wallet. On the card it says... Royal Savoy Hotel, Lausanne. I saved your life that day, Rolf. Now I'm calling it in. Willie holds the card up to his face. The camera spins around, transitioning into a rotary fan. We're now in a cheap hotel room. Sounds of breakfast radio echo through the ensuite bathroom. Outside the window. A pink sunrise is gathering over the rooftops. Caption, Adelaide, Australia. I am sitting on the bed, hotel phone to my ear, waiting on hold. Faintly, we hear a voice through the receiver. Okay, calling you through now. The next voice you hear will be Ben's, okay? Thank you, I say, standing. On the breakfast radio, I hear Ben's voice. Claims he got his head tattooed, so it looks as if he's permanently wearing Tom Hanks's Da Vinci Code wig. Hello, Christopher, are you there? I nudge the bathroom door closed. Uh, hello? Says the voice again. Is someone there? Skibbly bibbly bibbly. I say, then. End the call. Cut to the outdoor seating of a cafe. The cafe is at the summit of Mount Lofty, highest point in Adelaide. I restlessly check my watch, rise, make my way to the viewing platform. 750 metres below me, the city of churches sizzles in the noonday sun. From behind me, Oi! 
the camera swings around to reveal the speaker. Give me one reason I shouldn't kick you off this ledge right now, you pillock. Freeze frame. Caption. Ben I take a step backwards towards the edge. You got some nerve, Ross, says Ben. Calling my show and dropping one of the sacred radio passwords, dropping it on air no less. If you wanted to meet, you could have just emailed me. I've got a hotmail. I know you've got a hotmail, I say. We've all got hotmails, Ben. I'm trying not to leave a paper trail, mate. It's kind of the protocol when planning an intercontinental heist. I thought you might be more understanding. Ben pauses, scratches his nose. How much are we talking exactly? He says. You ever wanted to own a solid gold car? I say. That much, eh? Says Ben. <laughs> what about Liam? Can we bring him in? Sorry, I say. No partners. No, we come as a package. I'll vouch for him. No, no, no. no. This ain't a negotiable deal point, Benjamin. You can't bring Liam. End of. Anyway, if you need another person to bounce off, I've got this charming septuagenarian diplomat. He's Norwegian. He's hilarious. You guys will get on famously. Ben sighs. Pulls out his cigarettes. He takes in the view, turning over his options. I'm sorry, Ben. I say. But I don't have any leverage over Liam. But I do have leverage over you, if you recall. Remember how we first met? Riyadh Zoo, Saudi Arabia, when you fell into that tiger enclosure and I saved you. I pull out another business card. St. Valentine's Day, Switzerland. Fondue's on me, all right? Ben plucks the card from my fingers. You gonna tell me what you need from me? Or am I gonna have to fly halfway around the world for that particular piece of information? Let's just say I want you because you got a lot of ears, Ben. Australian ears. And it just so happens Australian ears are very valuable to me right now. Ben nods as if that was a satisfactory answer. And you got a good team, yeah? Mate. I say. The camera flies up into the sun, then zooms out again to reveal a brightly lit laboratory full of white-coated technicians. My dialogue continues as voiceover. It's not just a good team, I say. It's the best team. I'm pulling together the smartest, meanest bastards anyone ever had the misfortune to accidentally come across on Wikipedia. The camera closes in on the lab entrance. The door is violently kicked open. A woman in a lab coat strides into the room. Right, she yells. I want the whole genome analysis of TET dioxygenase function and regulatory T cells and I want it by last fucking Wednesday, you fucking muppets. Freeze frame. Caption. Under the roll. Montage of Dr. Rao's immunogenetic lab doing crazy lab shit. We see one immunobiologist spin flick a test tube into the air. One second freeze frame. Release. Another doctor leans down and blows the fog off a liquid nitrogen container. One second freeze frame. Release. A lab technician hands Dr. Rao a folder of notes. 
and Jana takes one look at the top page, then dismissively launches the folder into the air. Ultra slow motion shot as the documents flutter down upon the heads of her subordinates. The parking lot outside the lab. It's a starry California night. Caption, the La Jolla Institute for Immunology, San Diego. There is only one car left in the parking lot. We see Dr. Rao as she exits the lab and turns towards her car. I am sitting on her car bonnet. And Jana pauses for a second, then continues her approach. Hello, Anjana. I was hoping we could lift chair. You darkening my doorstep for a reason. A reason? Anjana, do I really need to remind you? Saudi Arabia, the tiger who came to tea. You'd be dead if it weren't for me. Anjana glowers. That fucking tiger enclosure. That place should be closed for good. I totally agree, I say. In fact, do you know, a Norwegian diplomat and an Australian radio personality nearly died in exactly the same manner, the same year as your incident. It, it, it really is just a miracle that I was there to help when I was. And Jana opens her car door. Well, Mr. Immaculate Timing, although it's been nice to catch up, I'm uh, already late for a fundraiser, I'm afraid. Well, what if I could make it so you never had to attend one of these fundraisers ever again? And Jana snorts. Jog on, you fucking prick. Her car pulls away, but then stops again at the edge of the parking lot. I walk back over. All right, Mr. Podcast, you've got 30 seconds. Okay, I say. Uh, so I'm working on, uh, well, it, it's basically a Guy Ritchie-esque heist caper. And um, it's of critical importance that I have someone on my team who understands how blood works. And Jana, you're the smartest person I've ever met. Your work in immunogenetics is, well, you know, it's completely fucking incomprehensible to me. But I know you can read DNA. You understand cryogenetics. And I reckon you could probably design a method for me to covertly transport rare blood using... I don't know, possibly some kind of novelty container. I haven't worked out the finer details yet. With your share of the profits, you could double your budget here at the Institute for the next 10 years, or I don't know, you could use it to buy that Wu-Tang album. Whatever, really, whatever Pepper's just steak, as a fella says. Dr. Rao's eyes remain fixed on her headlight beams. I said you had 30 seconds. That was one minute 12. You want to pull off a Guy Ritchie style heist, you better start working on your timing, sunshine. I nod, contrite. And Jana, just, just think about it, eh? I put the business card under her windscreen wipers. Don't do that, come on, just give it to me. Yeah, 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 sorry. As Anjana drives away, the camera defocuses, her taillights blurring into a single orb, which then slowly dissolves into the back of a red tracksuit. A young man is jogging around the perimeter of Shevenko City Garden. The park is dark, although the jogger's headlamp projects a small patch of light that bobs in front of his feet. Caption. 
Kharkiv, Ukraine. Recognizing a figure waiting ahead, the jogger slows to a walk, then stops. The figure lights a cigar. Obviously, it's me. All right, Pavlo. I assumed for orienteering you'd need to train in a forest or something. Nah, says the jogger. Forests are full of bees. Better to train here. There's a nice van over there that does good hot chocolate. Freeze frame. Caption. Pavlo Ushkarok. I need someone for a job. I say. Someone with preternatural spatial awareness who can navigate completely in the dark, even under extremely stressful conditions. Team of seven, high stake, high yield. Pavlo looks down for a second, then... All right, I'm in. Come Really? Well, you know, I owe you, don't I? After um, what happened in Saudi Arabia. That's, that's absolutely... Yeah, right, you do. Uh, I mean, I had a whole monologue planned, but... Uh, yeah. I give Pavlo the card. Then he and his headlight wobble off into the dusty night. Close up on my face as I realise I've now got 16 hours to kill in Kharkiv till my train back to the airport. Cut to me taking a selfie outside the Annunciation Cathedral. Cut to me clapping respectfully as a dolphin jumps through a hoop at the Kharkiv Open Air Dolphinarium. Cut to me in the Museum of Sexual Cultures looking at a Greek urn with a picture of a man wanking on it. Cut to me ordering a hot chocolate from that van that Pavlo recommended. The vendor has an eye patch and fingerless gloves. Cut to me in a bar with a group of clocked off bus drivers, all of us holding up a glass of Navalenka to the camera as we all shout, Budmo! Budmo! Hold shot for five seconds too long. Now cut to the back of someone's head. We're following them down a narrow utility corridor. We hear an audience beginning to applaud, the sound growing closer and closer. The figure steps through a curtain and into the glare of the stage lights. We see the actor Harvey Fierstein already on stage, beckoning the figure to stand next to him. Camera spins around as the figure grabs the mic from Harvey. Fucking hell, says Noma. You wankers need to calm the fuck down. Freeze frame. Caption. No, Cut to an establishing shot of the venue exterior. The 92nd Street Y. A sign outside reads, Noma Domezwini in conversation with Harvey Fierstein. Cut back to the stage. Harvey and Noma in conference chairs, sipping water. Noma, says Harvey, with a suspicious Mockney accent. To close out our discussion here tonight, I want to talk about your transition from being a theatre actor to working in film and TV, yeah? Because I tell you, for me personally, when I played Robin Williams' brother in Mrs. Doubtfire, part of me was thinking, well, this is all well and good, but it ain't fucking Broadway, is it? Has that been your experience at all? Have you missed, uh, missed live audiences? And enrapt audience listens as Noma raises her mic. Yeah says Noma. I know what you mean, mate. I mean, I love TV, but theatre, you know, that rush 
of feeling that, that the story flowing through you, yeah, of, of it happening like right now in front of you, of, of, of feeling it pulsing and changing every single night that you do it. It's, a, it's, 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 I mean, quite frankly, it's electric. Yeah, yeah, says Harvey. Yeah, it's electric, so, so. What people forget, says Noma, about the theatre is everything that happens up there on stage is a metaphor for something else. I mean, when I'm up there, I'm not me. I'm someone else. And I know that sounds obvious, but also two chairs on stage, they aren't just two chairs, are they? They're a train carriage or a park bench or a coffin or top of a mountain. Yeah, exactly, says Harvey. Yeah, it's, it's sick. Exactly, right? So now let's take that idea and run with it. What's really happening here, hey? We're in this liminal space where anything can stand in for anything. It's like we're stripping back reality to its abstract essence and then rebuilding it from our own imagination. And that is what theatre is, right? In essence, it's a prison. Each of us is looking into a prism, yeah? Whatever we choose to see, that's what we'll see. Cut to shortly after Noma and Harvey exiting the stage to rapturous applause. Camera follows them back into the green room where someone's laid out some melon bits on a trestle table. I thought that went all right, says Noma. This melon looks shit. I take off my Harvey Fierstein disguise, throwing an eyebrow over each shoulder. Noma turns back. Jesus. I'm sorry, Noma, I say. But you're not the easiest person to get a private audience with. She crosses the room and takes a seat, arms folded. Where is he? What, Harvey? I say. Tied up back at his gaff. Hang on, says Noma. Why didn't you reveal your identity in the 45 minutes we spent in this room before we went on stage? Like, you didn't have to do the whole Q&A. Never mind that, I say. I've got a role for you, Noma. It's one of those peripatetic theatre pieces. One of those interactive shows. Did I mention the money? Keep talking. It's a lot of fucking money. I think you're perfect for it, Noma. Ross, I'm a two-time Laurence Olivier award-winning actor. I'm not a con artist. And put that fucking melon back. Thank you. That's for Harvey Fierstein, not you. I drag my chair over to hers. Noma, on stage just now, you said that you missed the thrill of being live. Well, if you want live, there is nothing more alive than working on a con. Unless, of course, you get killed during the robbery. But did I mention the money? Noma rolls her eyes. Look, says Noma, every kind of live performance, whether it's a con job, a poetry reading, a play, fucking whatever, every single performance is basically like a prayer. You're attempting to conjure something out of the unknown. I unzip my bag. However, continues Noma, that doesn't mean that you get to control exactly what it is that you end up conjuring. When you play games with reality, there are always ripples. The universe is always listening and it will respond to you in ways that you never saw coming. I just don't know if you've got the stones to control the kind of energy that you're going to end up releasing. What are you doing? From my bag, I pull out a box of Frosties and a bowl. 
Just having some cereal. I say. I place the cereal box on the table right in front of her. Frosty mascot Tony the Tiger is wearing cool dude sunglasses on the front of the box. The shielding of his eyes makes him look particularly judgmental. You like Frosty's no more? Mm, great, ain't they? You know, it's uh, better to eat food from a tiger than be food for a tiger, don't you think? Noma rubs her head in frustration. <sighs> All right, she says. All right. I drop my business card into the frosty bowl. Free gift in every box, I say. Close up on Noma as I exit the room. Wanker. Cut to me now, sitting on an aeroplane, looking through my notebook. Only one crew member still to recruit. Cut to a drone shot of the jungle. The camera looking down on my rental car as it bumps along a dirt road. Caption, Maui, Hawaii. Cut to me pulling up at a security gate. A security guard is telling me that the road is closed for a film shoot. What do you think I'm doing here? I say to the guard. I'm Mr. Eugene Braverock's personal assistant. He just asked me to run into town and pick him up some... surf wax. He's waiting for it on set right now. The security guard asks to see my lanyard. Cut to me now, ten minutes later, pulling up to the security gate for a second time. Once again, the security guard repeats that the road is closed for a film shoot. Look at me, I say. I'm the fucking actor Harvey Fierstein, aren't I? Supporting role in Mrs. Doubtfire and Independence Day. I don't care what the call sheet says. I'm in this fucking film. Camera close up on the security guard's stupid fucking face. No, he says. No lanyard, no entrance. Cut to ten minutes later, me pulling up to the security gate for a third time. I've removed my Harvey disguise again, except for one eyebrow that I've left by accident. Look, I say to the guard, I haven't had a proper night's sleep in nine days. I've been flying back and forth all over the world, visiting countries in an order that makes no logical sense at all. I, I, yeah, I've, I've basically, I've fucked myself. And I'm fucking the planet as well, quite frankly. Please, just, I need to talk to Eugene Braverock for two minutes. Look, if you want to escort me to his trailer. The security guard puts his hand on my chest. If I see you again, he says, this will be a police matter. I get back in the car. As I drive back down the road, my mind begins to spiral. It has to be all six. I need all six. Without a stuntman turned actor in my pocket, I can't. The whole plan is how can I do this without all six? My thoughts circle smaller and smaller, eventually collapsing into a single inevitable truth. The dead center of the horizon. I have to call off the heist. I have to call off the heist. Cut to me, now sitting in Eugene Braverock's trailer. Eugene enters, dressed as a green beret, rifle in hand. All right, mate, says Eugene. How'd you get in here? Freeze frame. Caption. Eugene Braverock. Uh, 
Believe it or not, Eugene. I say. I don't really know how I... I was just... Anyway, it doesn't really matter. I'm here to offer you a job. Not an acting job, I mean a, a role in a heist. Uh, what do you think? Nah, says Eugene, putting down his fake rifle. Got a nice role right here, running from a prehistoric creature in the jungle. It's fun. Also, robbery is illegal last time I checked. Gene. I say. The successes you've had as a, as a stuntman, as an actor, just someone who likes to take chances, right? My ma used to say to me, it's always better to regret something you did than regret something you didn't do. <laughs> says Eugene. Sounds a bit like ma was trying to make you do something you didn't want to do. All right, then. Fine. I say. I totally understand, mate. But listen, just to show there's no hard feelings, let me give you a little something as a token of thanks for hearing me out. What's this, then? Says Eugene. That is an all-expenses-paid trip to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. The whole thing's paid for. It's on me. You're going to love it. I'll tell you, they have a zoo there. You would not believe. Camera close up on my cheeky face. Fade to black. Three seconds black. Then, fade up on my room at the Royal Hotel Savoy in Lausanne. I lie on the bed, waiting. The last of your guests has checked in, Mr. Smith. I've directed them as you instructed. Thank you, I say. I replace the phone, adjust my tie, then retrieve an extra large newsy cap from my suitcase. For an event of this magnitude, I believe the Royale is in order. Transition to the hotel roof bar where all six potential crew members are waiting for me, having arranged themselves in pleasing formations around the patio. The sun is just starting to set. Well, well, what a talented group of people I see before me. I say, opening a bottle of cherry kirsch as I approach. Here you are. Have a bit of this. Pavlo, Rolf, Ben, Anjana, Eugene, Noma. Do you know, once upon a time you had a clear view of Lake Geneva from this roof. I mean, now it's all been overdeveloped. Still, you get the mountains, which is pretty good. We came here, we did our bit, says Anjana. Now, what the fuck is this all about? All right, all right. I say. We're just doing a bit of scene setting. I'll cut to the Chevy then. The group moves in closer. Have all of you heard of the author, Charles Dickens? Yes, says Rolf. Obviously. Well, back in 1845, Charles Dickens lived right here at this hotel, this exact hotel for three months. This is where he wrote uh, The Battle of Life and the first three numbers of Dombey and Son. Dickens' time in Switzerland ended up getting cut short after a disastrous attempt that he made, along with his acquaintance, the showman Albert Smith, to climb Mont Blanc. Despite being accompanied by 16 guides, 18 porters, and a metric shit ton of food and drink, the two men were grossly underprepared for the physical toll of the mountain. Dickens ended up so knackered, he had to be dragged to the summit by two of his guides. Now, during this ordeal, 
Dickens experienced severe frostbite and in fact lost the smallest finger on his left hand. Dickens spent the rest of his trip convalescing in a hospital in Geneva. Anyway, fast forward 171 years to 2016, an expedition of French climate scientists start boring ice cores out of the mountain. And what should you think turns up in the ice archive but a certain little finger still frozen in the ice. Now, of course, the owner of the finger was a complete mystery to the Frenchies, though thankfully they kept the finger frozen in a facility in Grenoble. That is, until two years ago when some clever sod put the pieces together. Anyway, a private collector with a passion for Dickens' memorabilia ended up purchasing the finger and having it transported to Australia. Collector was Peter Keith. He's the CEO of Presto. It's an Australian oil company. Anyway, Keith had the finger locked away inside an ultra-secure private storage facility deep beneath the skyscraper in central Adelaide. That's what we're stealing, is it? Says Eugene. Charles Dickens' little finger. No, I say. Sadly, someone already tried that last year and absolutely fucked it. The finger ended up melting during the robbery. However, what the original robbers didn't know, and what we do know, is that there was a second equally valuable object being stored in the exact same vault, and it is still being stored in that vault today. A small, cryogenically stored sample of Charles Dickens's blood. Well, this is bollocks, says Anjana. Apparently, I say, in addition to several other ventures, Peter Keith also owns a state-of-the-art cryopreservation lab. And prior to the botched robbery, Keith had personally funded a research program whose sole purpose was to find a way to sample Dickens's DNA from the finger and then synthesise, at great expense, a small volume of his blood, which Peter Keith intended to sell at auction. And Janet, wait a second. Dr. Rao already has a coat on. Absolute fantasy, she says. Would you take us for, eh? You'd sound more credible if you told us we were out here to steal a singing frog in a top hat. Please, Anjana, listen, listen you, 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 you could be right. I don't know anything about synthetic blood, DNA sampling, the, the limitations of cryogenics. However, the only thing that you guys need to believe in here is the money. Did you know how much Dickensiana goes for at auction? I mean, you can get a brick and a half just for a first edition of Great Expectations. His engraved cigar case went for two mil at Sotheby's last year, and I've got a private buyer for the blood that's going to make all of that look like chump change. How much? 20 mil sterling. So that's just a little bit under three million each. Okay, so who is this client exactly? No, I'm the broker, all right? If I told you the client now, one of you might cut me out of my own deal. Once we've bagged the blood, I'll bring you all in together. Until then, just need to know. Sadly though, uh, the client does need to close before the end of the first quarter. So that does mean we have to hustle. I've paid for all your rooms here at the Royal for the next two weeks. That's all the time that we have to plan this thing. After that, one way or the other, we're walking into that vault. Noma raises her hand. Are we seriously supposed to believe that you came up with this plan all on your own? I mean, how the fuck are you an expert on Charles Dickens all of a sudden? Firstly, Noma, I say, 
You don't make an art documentary for Radio 4 without picking up a thing or two. Secondly, uh, people talk in prison. My cellmate Donnie had a big mouth. I mean, really, this was originally his score, but Donnie had no idea how to pull it off. I, however, just so happened to know the perfect contacts. Obviously, I'm talking about you guys. I signal over a waiter with a trolley. Look, I brought enough fondue for everyone. The cheese is a mix of Groyer and Emmental. If you're in, take a skewer of bread and dip it. If you're not in, well, you can still have the bread, but just dry bread, all right? You don't get fucking fondue. The fondue is for highest members only, all right? If you don't want to do it, no hard feelings. You stay here at the hotel for as long as you want. Enjoy Lausanne. It's beautiful in the spring, but whatever your decision's going to be, I'm sorry. But now's the time to make it. After the fondue is over, we line up against the balcony rail, turning our faces to catch the final rays of light. Our shadows stretch the length of the decking. I pass the bottle of Kirsch down the line so everyone can take a refill. Two actors, a radio presenter, a biophysicist, an orienteering champion, a retired Norwegian diplomat, and a podcaster one month away from hijacking a 20 million pound bottle of cryogenically frozen Charles Dickens blood from a subterranean security vault in southern Australia. Ross, says Pavlo, if this is going to work, we'll need a plan so flawless that not even the Virgin Mary herself could see through it. You really think we're the people for this job? Well, I say, I haven't worked out the details yet, but we've got a couple of weeks, haven't we? Thing is, Pavlo, past experience has taught me that whenever I back myself into a corner like this, I do tend to come up with something. I can't speak to how good it is, but there, there will be, but I do, it would something, yeah. The sun vanishes over the mountains, the sky turning to burnt toast. Okay says Pavlo. It's just, we're putting our lives in your hands for this. Yeah. Look, I say, I promise you, I, I, I promise all of you, everything is going to be absolutely fu Cut. So, that is the end of part one of this three-part heist miniseries. I guess it's going to be three parts. It's, it's probably going to be three parts. Like I said in the story just now, I haven't actually written the heist yet, but I've got a couple of weeks and I've worked it out. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. That's always how it tends to be on this podcast anyway. It's, it's always a bit of a trust exercise. Friends. <laughs> You have just been listening to a brand new episode of Imaginary Advice. 
That's right. It's back. The seven or so month hiatus is over. The wheels are spinning once more. It is so nice to be writing and recording once again. If this is your first time listening, Imaginary Advice is a monthly podcast of brand new audio storytelling. My name is Ross Sutherland. I wrote and produced this episode. And also, this podcast is free. This story is free to listen to. You also might have noticed it didn't contain any adverts. It has no sponsors, but it is a full-time job for me. So, if you like to support the show and ease some of the running costs, please consider making a monthly donation to my Patreon page. Uh, You can do that by going to www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Ross G Sutherland. $5 a month or more gets you a bonus making off podcast every month. Uh, You can pay in any denomination. You can pay in pounds or dollars or Australian dollars or uh, euros. Or if rather than doing a monthly thing you'd like to just make a one-off donation you can do that by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash imaginary advice thanks so much to anyone who already does that or or has done that in the past i'm uh, really really grateful for that help and support also this episode contained original music by jeremy wormsley for more of jeremy's music go to jeremywormsley.com Finally, uh, this is important. The people featured in this episode are fictional characters. I am in no way suggesting that any real person who happens to share a name with one of my characters would ever, ever conspire together to steal a bag of synthetic Charles Dickens blood from a subterranean cryogenic vault in Australia. They would never do it. They would never do it. The recording that you heard at the start of this episode of uh, my wife and I clicking through the random article function on Wikipedia, that was for that was that was for research purposes only. The subsequent story you heard was a complete work of fiction. Uh, if you want to talk to me online, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at Ross G Sutherland. I'll be back in exactly one month's time with part two of this mini-series, The Heist. Uh, Until then, my name is Ross Sutherland. Thanks for listening. Imaginary Advice.